We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. On the streets of old Milwaukee was a young boy walking. Somebody needs to take this mic away from you. You never need to hold it again. It's always a hater in the group. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brew Hoop Podcast. I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of BrewHoop.com, joined as per usual by Kyle Carr and Riley Feldman, recording directly after that Bucks toronto game that was an absolute barn burner down to the end. Milwaukee wins 108-100, to an absolutely fantastic game full of back and forth. Milwaukee was able to pull ahead late with a 10-0 run late in the fourth quarter to secure game one despite the absolute best efforts by the Raptors. And that'll be certainly be what we're going to be talking about after this game is whether the Raptors have a whole lot more that they could give to try and pull out a victory. But I want to start first with you, Riley. What percentage of the crowd did you think were able to wear their in arena t-shirts tonight? Well, I was going to say, I don't think that's the only thing we're going to come away from this game talking about. I was going to say that at least 10% of the fans wore their t-shirts and that is a huge step up from the negative five from the previous series. So um, in my notes that I wrote before the podcast, I have it triple circled fans stepped up. And I think that's going to be the biggest takeaway we get from this game and the rest of the series. So I'm excited to break it down. In all reality though, the Pfizer absolutely seemed to show up tonight, Kyle, like they, everyone was on their feet. It sounded loud as heck. Gabe uh, Stoltz are of course our intrepid reporter. Who's always in the arena for us. Um, hopefully his eardrums are doing okay. Cause that place sounded like a, an absolute madhouse. Yeah. I, I think Milwaukee saw Ford Madison's performance and decided, okay, we really <laughs> got to step it up and be the best team in Wisconsin. But no, the fans were absolutely fantastic right from the get go. Like I noticed it as soon as the game started, it was loud in there. It looked loud. People were wearing their t-shirts, which that's an improvement. So maybe by game two or five, if it gets to five, Maybe we'll have 50% of the fans wear their t-shirt. That would be an accomplishment. But no, in all seriousness, that was a fantastic game to watch as a neutral. It was one of those games that, you know, last year's Milwaukee Bucks lose that game. This year's Milwaukee Bucks in the first half might lose that game. But this Milwaukee Bucks team that we've seen the last couple months, it, it was I was never really thinking they weren't going to win. It got nervous, but... I just think you, know, you stick to the game plan, you stick to what got you there, and clearly it showed. Yeah, and let's start. I'll just run through a couple of the box scores here, just the basic numbers for you. Giannis finishes with 24 points, 14 rebounds, 6 assists, 2 steals, 3 blocks. A couple of huge blocks late, looked great defensively. Didn't really feel like he had it going offensively that much to me. Uh, seemed like he was having a little bit of trouble finishing against the Raptors as they were packing the paint, akin to the Celtics were in that series. But beyond that, the huge winner of tonight's game is Brooke Lopez with 29 points. And 11 rebounds breaks out of his slump in a massive way. 12 of 21 attempts from the field, just an incredible performance by him to help pull out the victory. Bledsoe, nine points, Middleton, 11, both had quieter nights. And then for the Raptors, Kawhi Leonard gets 31 points, but on 26 field goal attempts. So I think some absolutely stellar defense by Brogdon and Middleton shouldn't go unnoticed there. Kyle Lowry finally has a good game against the Bucks. finishes with 30 points on seven of nine shooting 10 of 15 from the field. Uh, and I, I, I think we need to start, Riley with with Brooke Lopez's performance. I mean, he he seemed marginalized in the Celtics series. Uh, he, they were basically putting Al Horford on Giannis, letting Marcus Morris guard Lopez. 
he couldn't make a shot. I think uh, Matt Velasquez had the stat that he was uh, O of 18 heading into after his first couple of attempts in this game, leading back to game three of the Celtics. And this has to just be like a huge redemption moment for him, particularly when we thought coming into the series, he could, he could be a bigger element considering he was facing off against a more like for like opponent in Marc Gasol. Yeah. And it was so frustrating from the get go, just because you're like, okay, now we have a whole new opponent. Like you said, like Marcus all is totally different in terms of a defensive offensive assignments um, for Lopez to have to guard. And the fact that Lopez came out and he showed himself willing to take the threes, but still wasn't making them right off the bat. I was like, er, is he rusty? Is like, is it still going to continue? You figure he's going to round it to form eventually, but um, I didn't expect it to really come in the fashion that it did in the second half where he's like dominating on both ends of the floor. But I think not only his three-point shooting kind of unlocking things finally for the Bucks in the second half, but it should be noted that, especially I think in the first half, he was four for four in the paint when the Bucks were really going through a dry spell on offense. Um, and as we know, that's not exactly his game, at least as of this last season or the last two seasons. And the fact that he was able to step up either, whether it be within chaos or in purposeful ways where he's cutting to the basket and he always looks really off balance every time he's trying to like three step it, kind of fake Euro step towards the basket and do some sort of circus shot. But it worked well enough to help keep the Bucks at least within striking distance. And then in the second half, like I said, both ends and he finally hits threes and kind of breaks it all wide open. So um, I think a lot of people are kind of predicting he might be an X factor just because he was so marginalized because of the way Al Horford plays guys like him. Um, and now that you have Marcus all out there, it's, uh, it can easily turn into a bloodbath. And I think that's a good jumping off point too, for the other huge, huge stat of the night bucks get 15 offensive rebounds. Uh, if you look at the offensive rebound rate on cleaning the glass, uh, they were up around, sorry, just pulling it up here. Uh, they were up to 32.8%, which is just an absolutely massive number. Uh, coming into this series, it didn't seem like that would be a huge element of either of these teams. Uh, games. Neither of them ranked very highly in terms of offensive rebounding rate. The Bucks were 26th. You know, Lopez is usually at the top of the arc pulling up and he tries to get back and they want to get their defense set. Toronto's ranked 22nd in terms of offense, offensive rebound rate. Uh, and then both teams, obviously we know Milwaukee was uh, the best or one of the best defensive rebounding teams in the in the league this year. Toronto ranked 18th, so not too bad, but it really just seemed like those offensive rebounds, whether it was Miritich uh, Giannis or, or Lopez tipping stuff in Kyle it seemed to me that those were just huge turning points when the Bucks just weren't able to get baskets that helped pull them out of those spells yeah it's almost like Riley was reading my five questions with Raptors HQ and saw that I said that Brooke Lopez was going to be a swing passer <laughs> in that series huh. thanks Riley I hashtag thanks Kyle hashtag <laughs> thanks Kyle <laughs> what a hashtag um yeah it was it, Milwaukee's offense in general was give Giannis the ball and let him get baskets and everyone else is just going to throw up bricks. And I think the biggest thing for Milwaukee in that run was they kept shooting. They kept taking those open shots and you have to keep doing that. You have to keep looking for those looks, even though Brooke Lopez wasn't even able to hit the rim on a good amount of shots. He still kept shooting it. Even when Chris Middleton couldn't get anything going, especially from three and they're running him off the three point line. He hits a three when Bledsoe couldn't get anything in the first half. He attacks the rim, gets a couple layups, gets in transition, gets an and one. And it was just like piece by piece. Each of those contributing players were able to 
finally get that basket. Even Nikola Mirotic hits that three in the fourth quarter that really got things open for Milwaukee near the end. Other than Giannis and Brogdon, there wasn't really anyone that from start to finish had a good performance on offense. And, and Lopez's defense has been the reason why he's still been able to keep staying on the floor. And in this game, it was that was still the case. He didn't really get overpowered. He had a big block on Kawhi near the end. He was able to just strip the ball. Actually, he blocked Kawhi and he stripped the ball from him. So just defensively, Lopez is still doing what he's been doing the last two rounds, and that's providing great help defense while dropping back. And then an offense, shoot or shoot. And when Lopez hit those two, I thought the roof was going to blow at Fiserv. Yeah, and I think defensively, that's a great point, too. You come into the series, you, a lot of pundits are talking about if Marcus Hall can hit the three, but he's a little gun shy. I mean, seven three-point attempts for him tonight. I think if you're a Raptors fan, you have to be pretty happy with that. But if, following, I would say, maybe the first half, in the second half, it seemed like the Bucks improved quite a bit in terms of their defensive rotations. There were a lot of a lot of mistakes, a lot of guys running out at shooters and allowing Toronto to make the extra pass and, and get open looks from the outside. But um, I, I don't think enough can be said about Lopez's ability to still operate within that zone drop scheme, Riley. And then, I mean, even a couple of times in the second half, he was matched up just directly against Kawhi Leonard. And I really don't think people give him enough credit for being able to at times in little bunches match up against guys like that really, really strong perimeter ISO oriented scorers and, and hold his own. Well, it's not even that, but it's the fact that he's like a safety blanket of sorts, like for whatever reason, I think maybe it has to do with the fact that he plays so much on the perimeter on the offensive end, but he routinely puts up these crazy block numbers where like, he'll just once every two weeks, I'll have a five block game. And it's, I think a lot, especially in the fourth quarter, there was two Kawhi, uh, where Kawhi was trying to drive towards the basket. Maybe luckily you might have a freebie and all of a sudden Brooke Lopez is there because he's got the mobility to be able to kind of switch over, help out whoever got beat on the perimeter and then block the shot or at least alter it enough where he's not able to make it. So um, it's also, it, it's wild because he's just this really large guy and you're like, Oh, I can't believe he's mobile, but he's got enough foot quickness to be able to not only stay kind of semi glue to guy. If he's, you know, a smaller guy, if you switch up on a guard, but also, that he has the awareness to operate within the zone drop scheme and then also see when a teammate is maybe struggling or gets blown by and he's able to move quick enough to at least provide you know some sort of resistance between the offensive player and the basket so um, I agree that it's definitely underrated just because he's got the three-point shooting that's so flashy and that's kind of what gets the headlines but he should get all the credit in the world for the fact that he and Giannis together it makes it nigh impossible for teams to score on the paint when they're both kind of uh, working in unison. Yeah, and the hilarious part to me, Kyle, is that it seemed like, I mean, it, it, I would tend to agree with the, this narrative. It seemed like the Bucks took uh, Toronto's best punch tonight with a great game from Lowry. And, uh, you know, obviously excellent shooting from beyond the arc, 15 and 42, 35.7% versus 11 for 44, 25% for the Bucks. But, you know, it was funny to me. I just, I, I honestly was surprised by the fact when I looked at the box score at the end that Toronto had actually shot worse overall from the field than the Bucks, 37% versus 39.8%. And I think that just says a lot about um, the Bucks relying on their ability to push teams into the mid-range. I mean, the Raptors only shoot 10 of 33 from the mid-range tonight. Perhaps that'll uh, progress and improve in future games. But uh, I think just like you were talking about, Kyle, in terms of them sticking to their guns offensively and what sort of strategies they stick, they want they want to follow. They did the absolute same thing defensively, and it wound up paying off in the end, and especially in that fourth quarter. Yeah, and 
a good chunk of why Milwaukee was able to eventually shoot better from the field than Toronto is you were kind of mentioning those rebounds and a, a lot of those rebounds were right under the rim. They got it and were able to get an easy putback or just a tip in. So those 15 rebounds were huge and that's what helped them climb that field goal percentage. And it was kind of funny because that third quarter, that's when we've seen the Bucks become this world beating team goes on a run and suddenly they're up 10, 15, 20 points. And you started seeing that it was coming back again, you know, they had a couple threes. Giannis gets the line, but then he misses both free throws. Toronto goes on a run. They're up 10, and you're thinking, oh, Toronto took Milwaukee's possible best punch and not only withstood it, but extended their lead. That's something we haven't seen, but apparently Milwaukee got into the fourth quarter, and it was like when Daenerys heard those bells and decided to burn all of King's Landing to the ground. And that is what Milwaukee did. It got to the fourth quarter and burned Toronto straight to the ground with Brooke Lopez, with Chris Milton, with that defense, just swarming them. They outscored them 32 to 17 in the fourth quarter. And part of that's going to be fatigue, but a lot of it was finally forcing Toronto to get those mid-rangers. Other than Kyle Lowry, no one else is an active, really forced on offense. Kyle Lowry's the only one offensively in the fourth quarter that was able to get anything going consistently. And it's that's what we've been seeing with Milwaukee is they stick to their game plan. At some point, your shots are going to fall. At some point, the opponent shots are going to they're going to miss it. You're going to force more mid ranges. You're going to get what you want. You're going to build into that momentum. And I think it was also helpful that Milwaukee's bench, while they didn't necessarily do what they did against the Celtics, in which the bench mob was the reason why Milwaukee was able to go on these huge runs. They were still able to hold on and let Giannis get a breather, let Chris get a breather. And because of that, while Toronto on the other end, they didn't really go to their bench. You know, they only had a couple minutes from Fred Van Fleet. They only had a couple minutes from Norm Powell. They had 17 minutes from Serge Ibaka. He was the only one to play more than 15 minutes off the bench. And you can maybe see those tired legs, especially after that seven-game series, starting to factor in when it came to Kawhi, when it came to Marcus Saul, especially because Saul just looked overpowered multiple times against Lopez. You see Dan Green not really getting into the game. Pascal Siakam kind of disappeared, and that's more Milwaukee's defensive ability. And I I know we talk a lot about their offense kind of going on these runs, but it's really their defense that kind of fuels it. I'm really glad you mentioned the bench because when you look at when you look at the point totals tonight, obviously Brogdon, I I mean he's he's on the bench now, but for all intents and purposes, he's essentially a starter level player. But you look at George Hill, Ilyasova, Peck, Connaughton, you would think, all right, seven points combined from those guys, especially zero points from Hill and Connaughton after the series that they just had against the Celtics, you'd think, all right, well, that's a little troubling. Uh, but when you look at their plus minus tonight, I mean, they were all at least net neutral or a huge positive. Brogdon was plus 18, Connaughton was plus one. Hill and Ilyasova were net neutrals, which I think for Ilyasova, that's a huge win because early on in the game, Siakam was just taking him to task, just treating him like, uh, his whipping, you know, his 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 guy that he could just destroy whenever he wanted to in the post went in for a dunk early on. George Hill didn't look like he was able to attack the rim the same sort of way against the athletes that Toronto has at the rim. wasn't able to get the sort of dunks that he was looking for and uh, and cooking the sort of guards that he did in the Boston series. Brogdon obviously did great, and Connaughton. I mean, it won't look like much, but 
I mean, Riley, the things that stood out to me were we talked so much about the importance of rebounding. Toronto got some big offensive rebounds in this game, and Conton had a couple where he just skied for boards, landed them right before he was about to run out of bounds and tossed them back inbounds. So I, I think those are the type of huge contributions that you need to have from a guy, especially when he's just going to be playing 11 minutes. Yeah, he's like uh, he's like Tony Snell, except Tony Snell minus rebounds like that's even if he's out there the only if the only thing he provides is a couple of rebounds again in minutes and spots where the bucks were kind of struggling and just needed a quote-unquote calming hand uh, i would agree that even if he's only gonna shoot one three and miss it and take one other attempt and you know a block is really helpful but even if he's just a guy who you get the ball to him and he's not necessarily the type of guy who's going to lead to the fast break, but he's able to kind of do the easy outlet pass to whoever it's going to be able to be Milton or Giannis, whoever else to kind of get going. And we saw countless times, especially as the second half wore on that when Milwaukee took the pace up a notch or two, um, they were able to put Toronto into difficult positions and not really be as effective defensively. So um, you're right that 11 minutes, just six, re- oh, not just six rebounds, but six rebounds in 11 minutes. And that's the only thing it does. It doesn't seem like it would be a lot, but small stuff like that definitely helps kind of keep you calm through the storm. And then you eventually just kind of wear Toronto down and get the win at the end. Well, and it also um, helps that you with those rebounds, he was not a liability on defense. And that's been the biggest concern with Connaughton. He had one moment where he was kind of deciding between you close out on the shooter kind of on the elbow extended or you go in the corner and you chose to go in the corner, left someone wide open for three, which was not great, but that's the only poor defensive thing he did all game. And that's good. You know, we were deriding him after game one about his defense and not hitting shots. So to go along with those rebounds, just being solid defensively was huge. Were you guys surprised at all that, uh, that with the, um, willingness of, of Bud to in just in Brogdon's just his second game back. He basically went with the Brogdon plus bench. Besides Lopez being out there, obviously, but I, w- I was I was pretty surprised that he would go to that unit um, so quickly after Brogdon's return. I might have been, but then Brogdon threw down that slam, and I was like, "All right, well, I guess he's back." So uh, no, it, well, I guess I'm not too surprised because you assume that they kind of have a rough idea for what he looks like. And I think they're very comfortable because like we said throughout the season, like that's just one of Brogdon's main lineups. And the fact that they're like, okay, well maybe we don't get Brogdon out there in the starting lineup, but we essentially slot him into the role that we were using a lot during the season. Um, it's not that crazy. I mean, it's just, you have Nicole out there and he's just kind of filling the minutes otherwise. So it's not wild in the fact that Brogdon played so well, like <laughs> Those threes, it's it's still the ball gets a little sticky in his hands still, like on offensive possessions. But the fact that he let it fly right from the get go and just getting you know weird baskets at timely moments is like wow, I totally forgot how much I miss having Malcolm out there. Like even at times he can be a little infuriating. It's just the fact that he's so fearless when he takes a shot and he was hitting them on such you know with such regularity tonight is awesome to see. Yeah, and in a situation. You, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, go. I was going to say, in a situation like that where the ball was maybe getting a little sticky, it was needed in that first half. No one else could hit a shot. No one else could get anything going. So, you know, even though it is frustrating, those are the times when maybe it's not a bad thing to have that sticky hand, to have the ball just solely be with him, is if no one else can really contribute on the offensive end, was what I was going to say. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the Bucks needed it at points tonight. I think especially when you're facing off against a team where they're so keyed in on on obviously stopping Giannis. I mean, almost every chance they get, they're throwing doubles at him. And, you know, Toronto has decent perimeter defenders, but Brogdon, 
I mean, no matter who's guarding him, he has just such a weird repertoire of tricks that he has in his basket as he's trying to finish. He's like one of the most odd. Obviously, Kyrie is the supreme small guy finisher at the rim, but he just has such an odd way of finishing between moving his moving his body and being able to do reverse layups. I mean, I think you need a guy out there who's willing to do that. And and defensively, Kyle, I was impressed by his ability to body up against Leonard. I thought he might have a little trouble against him, and and obviously everyone will, but. I think Leonard's sort of obviously probably tired legs and, and lethargic nature working in, in the mid range and, and trying to find his spots lent itself to, to Brogdon's game defensively. Yeah. And I think Chris Middleton definitely deserves some plaudits for his defense on Kawhi. Him and Brogdon were able to stick with him. He was still able to hit a couple shots, still able to get those. Rim- had another lucky bounce. Apparently the rim is his best friend, but overall that's, if that's the kind of performance that Kawhi is going to put up, you live with it. Considering how good he's been the previous two series, this is if this is what you get out of Kawhi, and you know Kyle Lowry has his good game, that's okay. If no one else is going to contribute if he's going to take those mid rangers. It's a positive sign for Milwaukee, and I think the defense that they were playing and kind of showed as the game wore on that it was starting to affect Kawhi a little bit more. And he was still having to put in his fantastic defending on fantastic defending on Middleton or Brogdon or whoever he saw it to commit to that end of the floor as well. And yeah, you can kind of just see he was losing a little bit of steam as he got closer to the end. And maybe he was just like, I'll just like Kyle Lowry take these shots because he's the only one that seems to be hitting it. I'm super curious as the series goes on because I, I agree with both of you guys that Chris should get you know some praise for the way that even though Kawhi did get the raw point total, it took him a lot of work to get there. And if Chris is going to be the main off or defensive assignment there, and if Chris is taking the position seriously, which I think he is, um, I'm not sure how much you can rely on him to be like a go-to score on the other end if he if he's regularly exerting so much effort on defense to try and keep Kawhi at least semi-bottled in or force him to kind of get the ball out of his hands. So um, I think that kind of leads into a discussion where even though Chris didn't have a great offensive night, it's not so much on his shoulders. It's more so on the guys like Eric Bledsoe, which, you know, you get through with the win. But I think the fact that he had zero points, like two shot attempts, one assist at half and, you know, he, he ends up with nine points, but he takes 12 shots to get there. He doesn't make a single three. I think um, I'm not going to declare it's a series like it's going to be Boston all over again, but it, definitely concerned with where he's at just because you hope you move on from Boston. You finally get the win over them and see yet. He still seems reticent to score. And, and if you're going to not have him out there, then you're going to need more like Brooke Lopez out outlier games or other guys to really hit shots to make things happen. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Bledsoe. I wanted to talk about him. I, I don't know. I, on some level, it's just he's just a player that I'm having such a hard time figuring out. I, I, he comes out from halftime and has an absolute, you know, bully ball, aggressive driving to the basket, and you just want to tear your hair out and think, why weren't you doing that in the first half? That's what you should be doing. Yeah, he's doing his time. like flexing thing. I'm like, okay, finally you showed up. Like you just had to wait for halftime, or it, like. It is just, it's so bizarre to me. Like it, it almost feels like, you know how in the, um, I, I remember this like anecdote of like, I think it was like Chauncey Billups and during the Pistons heyday, he would be like, yeah, the first thing we had to do was just give Ben Wallace a touch so he could get the first, first shot of the game. Uh, and I almost wish Bud would just be like, all right, Bledsoe, you have to drive to the basket. First play of the game. That's just what you have to do. They just set it up and they try and get him to drive to the basket. Cause as soon as he does that, 
things obviously improve. I mean, he pulled up for some annoying mid-range jumpers. Obviously, he, I'm not as annoyed by him going 0 for 6. I mean, he hits whatever his regular average is from that, 2 for 6. All of a sudden, his night actually doesn't even look that bad. It's 5 for 12, 15 points, that kind of stuff. Uh, we probably won't be talking about it in the same sort of manner. But he's he's on a horrific mark. I think it was John Schumann today who said he is he has like he's been the worst uh, three point shooter pull up three point shooter in terms of volume in the playoffs so far around twenty percent. Uh, but it, it just seems like Kyle. I mean, this, this team's we talked about this before. This team's ceiling is raised so much when Bledsoe plays well, and it just continues to be frustrating to see him not really play within himself and in the way that he's been so successful throughout this whole year, and arguably the Bucks' second best player. Right, and I. Yeah, we kind of thought it's just against the Boston Celtics. And then we thought maybe in Boston. And now I, I don't know what's going on. And maybe it's the, you know, the the playoff intensity is getting to him. Or kind of what you said, he just has to get engaged early. But it's it's tough because you see in that second, in that third quarter, he gets those back-to-back layups. He gets the end one. And you're thinking this is when he's going to turn it around. And he's got to be that guy. Even if he's not the Bucks' second best player, he's got to be the third or fourth. And he's got to be someone that's just defensively, he's do better on Kyle Lowry. Offensively, get to the rims. If you have an open three, obviously shoot it. But Bledsoe is at his best when he is able to penetrate and attack the rim. Because what that allows, it allows someone else as a help defender, you can then kick it out to the corner. It gives more passing lanes. It fo- has teams focus on him. It just creates it for shooters. So I, I don't know what the struggle is, and I might have to either rewatch some of these games or ask Brian what's going on, but it just seems like he's hesitating. There was a couple times in the first half where it was getting down to two or three seconds on the shot clock, and instead of shooting the three, he does, he does an extra pass, and forces a very, very poor shot with 0.4 seconds left. And that's, those are the kind of things where you can't let that consistently happen. And while it's normally okay to have an extra pass, if it's open, you got to be aware that there's a couple seconds left and you can't. And I think it was more out of hesitation than trying to get a good look. And you see like instantly, like you said, in the third quarter, you see when he's pushing and even if, whatever move he's making toward the basket doesn't actually convert into a score. Giannis isn't trying to handle four dudes in the paint by himself. Like Eric is cutting with the ball towards the basket. So two defenders go over to him and Giannis reads that Giannis instantly starts going to the paint as well. Kind of has, you know, his own guy trailing off him, but he's open enough. And we've seen it time and time again, that Bledsoe has the ability to get the ball to him in a tight space. And I believe, and I want to say it was like midway through the third you know, Eric brings two, three defenders towards him because he had finally gotten a couple of baskets to go. And instead of trying to force it, he kicks it over to Giannis and Giannis doesn't convert the basket, but he gets a lot cleaner of a look than having to, you know, manhandle four dudes to try and get a foul call or try and get through the basket. So it's small stuff like that. It's like, we all know exactly how Eric's supposed to play. Even if the opponent knows how he's supposed to play, he's so athletic and he's still got enough quickness to be able to make it happen regardless. And that's what makes it so frustrating to watch. All right, I want to talk a little bit about Giannis tonight, actually. I, I, I thought it was an interesting game for him. He goes 9-12 from the free throw line, which is always promising. It felt like that third quarter was, again, him just sort of getting to the line, slowing the game down, helping the Bucks sort of push through and get to the end of get to the end of that period and, and try and make it so that they weren't behind by too much. Uh, but then in, in the fourth quarter, I'm pretty sure he only had, I think it was one basket. Um, and it just felt to me 
like he hadn't quite figured out what the Raptors were doing to him yet. He wasn't quite making the, it didn't feel like he was making his reads quite quick enough. Obviously the Raptors were throwing Gasol at him in addition to Siakam almost every chance they could. Every time he would bring it up to the wing, the Bucks tried a lot of stuff to try and get him going, put him into pick and roll with as the ball handler, worked with Chris Middleton a little bit. You mentioned that play where he was looping in with Eric Bledsoe and just couldn't convert the finish. What were your overall impressions of his game tonight, Riley? And uh, do you sort of expect him, like in the Boston series, to, I don't know, quote-unquote, figure this defense out going forward? Uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> I, I think I'm not not nearly as worried. It helps, one, that you already get the win, so you're not like sky is falling. And the fact that even when he looked out of sorts, it didn't look nearly as bad as it did in game one against Boston. So um, I would agree that it, there's kind of similar outlines to it where – Again, he he has to adjust for the fact that they have this crazy crash defense that's going against them. It's like, okay, you have to kick out. And I wonder, I think I saw you actually, Adam, tweet that, you know, you wonder if maybe it's, he's a little, not nervous, but, you know, does he lose a little faith because the Bucks, the shooters aren't shooting all that well? Like just none of the baskets are going. So he's like, well, maybe I have to kind of still try to make it go myself. And the fact that he got zero, was it zero free throw attempts? I don't think he had a single free throw attempt in the first half. Like, you know, that's unacceptable yeah, with the way that he plays. And he was obviously, you know, repped quite a bit better in the second half with those 12 free throw attempts. But um, it was just kind of, you got similar vibes, but the fact that he adjusts in the second half and the whistle kind of goes his way and he continued as we have seen it all year long and in Boston as well, the fact that he continued to like just kick, 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 draw the defense kick or if I have enough of a opportunity to kind of get towards the basket and then go for it. But um, he will work it out. I'm not at all worried about Giannis figuring things out. Like if they're going to keep throwing Siakam at him, if Siakam's still going to play 42 minutes a night, like he's just not going to be able to hold up. And I don't know how much longer Ibaka gets the Giannis stopper label, but if he's only going to play 15 minutes, then I don't know how effective it'll be in those minutes either. Yeah, Kyle, what were your sort of impressions of Giannis tonight uh, following this game? Obviously, he's he's huge. He has the matchup with Kawhi. That was the thing that was big big and, and billed as coming in. But it felt like those guys, I mean, sort of somewhat even each other out with, I would say, relatively quiet games compared to what we were expecting. Yeah, they both were a lot quieter than their past playoff performances would indicate. Um, it didn't seem that way initially. Giannis was the only Bucks player that was – able to do anything on the offensive end. He gets a quick, I think it was, what, nine out of Milwaukee's 13 points to start with. And it was weird he didn't get one free throw during the first half. And obviously, they turned around and he got 12 in the second half. But I think with the fourth quarter in particular, he seemed to just not take on a larger load offensively while Brooke Lopez was kind of getting going and letting everyone, it seemed like he was trying to let everyone else try and find the rhythm. And then he was just a force of nature on the defensive end. And I think that's really the thing that's going to stand out to me was he still had his, you know, 20 something points, 14 rebounds. Like that's good. But defensively he was everywhere in that fourth quarter. And to do that while not following, well, not, he didn't draw, I don't think he drew a charge, but no, I think he, he didn't get an offensive foul. He didn't, really get into any foul trouble at all in this game and that's that's a big thing because i was going to be a little bit concerned because toronto saying oh we'll just sit there and take a charge on Giannis, and we'll make sure he gets in foul trouble but he didn't do it i think on the defensive end that's really why it seems like he wasn't as 
effective offensively. I think he was trying to let his teammates shine and catch fire a little bit and then focus on the defensive side. Well, but Giannis tried to take a charge tonight. Did you did you guys remember that? I feel like I haven't seen it, him try it, to do that I think, wasn't it Lowry? Wasn't he guarding yeah. Lowry? It's, I'm not sure if you can quote-unquote call it a charge. It was def, definitely a flop, but I think really he was doing it in honor of Ersan's birthday, so it makes sense. It was <laughs> I mean, Ersan got a charge. I think he had two charges. Two, two, charges, yeah, two, two charges. I was hoping for 32, but I guess that seems a little unrealistic. <laughs> Poor Ersan. About Earth. There's just something about Ursan. He just makes he just makes all these little plays. God, there's just something. Yeah, about but as you were saying earlier, it was hilarious when Pascal Siakam was like, uh, "I'm just gonna go around you." I was like, "Wow, this is brutal to watch <laughs> right now." It's not great. Yeah, that was tough. One last thing I want to touch on. This is something I was I thought I really keyed in on when I looked at the stats coming into this series. If you look at transition plays on cleaning the glass, basically Toronto had the best, most efficient transition uh, team in the league. They ran it, ran in transition at the fifth highest frequency, had the highest points per play mark. Uh, Milwaukee was also good. I, they were around like the fourth um, highest points per play mark, eighth highest frequency. So obviously they're looking really good. Uh, but the Bucks also had the best transition defense in the league, held teams to the lowest points per play um, out, of, out of anyone. And it turns out that the Bucks defense really held up tonight and their offensive transition won out too. So Raptors basically had significantly below their typical points per play numbers in transition tonight. And the Bucks ran in transition even more than them, 27.7%. That's up from their number in the postseason so far, 21.4%, I believe the Bucks were at, which is significantly higher than any other team tonight. And, and something that you were mentioning, Riley, is, you know, the, the, the Bucks in transition, it, it felt like, you know, they were able to get steals and, and some of those plays, which I think really juiced their numbers tonight. Um, but when you're talking about pushing the pace of play, it felt like the Raptors, especially early on, they maybe didn't count as transition buckets, but they would push the ball, uh, get an early look at a three, uh, which seemed like a, a smart move for them as opposed to trying to face it off against Milwaukee's half-court defense, or else they were just moving really quickly into their offense with like a series of drive-in kicks that seemed to flummox the Bucks' rotations uh, before they were able to, to get back. They're sending too many defenders at a guy driving into the lane, and then suddenly, all of a sudden, the Raptors have a look for a prime look from from three, and it seemed like that was really the primary issue early on in this game. Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking like if you're Milwaukee, you come off of that Boston series where by the end of it, it was like okay, maybe Boston makes one or two passes, and then whoever the recipient of that second pass, it's like all right, it's my turn to take a shot, and you maybe you get in this mindset where you're so used to like a somewhat stagnant ISO heavy offense where, you know, Boston every once in a while would have a little bit more ball movement, but then you come into this where you could clearly see it was like, okay, if we're getting, if a Toronto possession only ends in one or two passes, it's usually in transition. And it's usually like a kickback out to the three point line for a shot from there. But otherwise it was like this sort of not frantic because that kind of denotes something chaotic, but this almost like it, it, constant motion and it's like you said it's like driving kicks or we're just going to kind of swing it around the perimeter and they would routinely get five or six passes and even when a guy would get the ball and kind of commit towards the basket kind of you know late in the shot clock or whatever it is they weren't necessarily like in this mindset where i'm definitely going to put this shot up and they would always kind of keep an eye out for the open three-point shooter on the you know in the corner or whatever it happens to be and as the game wore on, I think Milwaukee's defense adjusted to that because you have to kind of get used to a new pace of play. And then, you know, I, I think we're going to harp on it more as the series goes along. 
Toronto's been running their starters right into the ground. Like, yes, on one hand, they don't really have much of a choice, but it, all these games and all these minutes are going to add up eventually. And I think that just kind of helps also play a role in it. So, you know, if you can survive the first half where Toronto's still kind of crisp and keep it within striking distance, you definitely could probably grind them down and then shut their offense down for the most part in the second half. Yeah. And, and Kyle, one of the things that, I mean, if I'm thinking about as a Raptors fan, and we and we talked about it right at the start, I mean, we're, what do you even think about after this game? I, I was looking a little bit at the numbers of, of hope that they might be able to have in terms of, of numbers reverting back to the mean. You know, they shot 30% from the mid-range for the season. They were shooting 43%, so you hope that kind of goes up a bit. But, I, I mean, they shot around their season average from three. Uh, you know, they didn't shoot as well from the rim as typically, but they're also facing the best rim defense in the league. I mean, if you're a Raptors fan, how do you even think that you're going to be able to come back from this in a game that seemed like prime for you to steal it? You give the Bucks your best chance and you still lose by eight. Yeah, that's going to be the part that I, I don't know how you answer that because if Milwaukee shoots even 30% from three and you win, then you feel better. Or if Milwaukee just shoots better in general and you lose and it's like, okay, Milwaukee just shot well, but Milwaukee shoots 25% from three. Milwaukee offensively couldn't do anything for three quarters. You know, you see, had Kyle Lowry have probably the game of his career. And in the end, you still end up losing by eight. Granted, Marcus Gasol might play a little bit better. Danny Green might play a little bit better. Pascal Siakam might. Like, you have all these guys that might play a little bit better. But then you have to look at Milwaukee and you have to think, Chris Milton's not going to shoot that poorly from three again, right? Like, Nikola Mirotic isn't going to shoot that poorly from three. Malcolm Brockton looks to be really, really healthy now. So I don't know where you go if you're a Raptors fan, other than you think you just hope that this, like maybe the mid range gets a little bit better. Milwaukee doesn't get as many offensive rebounds. The Bucks outscored Toronto in the paint 44 to 20. So could you possibly reduce that margin? And I, that's the thing. I don't know what you do if you're Toronto besides you stick to the same game plan and just hope that another player steps up or you reduce Milwaukee's offensive rebounds. But I think that's really bad. I, that's not really something you should bank your hopes on to win a series. I was going to say they have one of two options. Okay, here's number one is complain from here until Friday to the high heavens about the officiating. That's number one. <laughs> number two is you pray that Jody Meeks got one revenge game former buck jody meeks you hope he's got one revenge game in him and he can hit like three three pointers uh <laughs> I feel otherwise like any revenge any revenge juice meeks had he just like pushes like injects into norman powell's veins before this uh, game yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna say, if there's anyone norman that. powell would have the revenge game yeah yeah kyle weren't you uh weren't you saying in the group chat you're like this is like uh 2017 all over again you were getting like ptsd flashbacks <laughs> <laughs> like it's dark it, out there. It was getting bad. It was getting bad. I'm not no, going to lie. <laughs> I would say I would agree in general that you kind of just hope for generally better games. Like, I don't know, like Siakam going six for 20. Can you expect a guy to be that poor again? But he wasn't, you know, after the first quarter, it wasn't really an impressive game from him. Um, Serge Ibaka, he was really big for them in game seven. Like, is he going to have a bounce back or is it, how long does it take him to get in? And then I think um, I have no idea what OG Ananobi's like, prognosis is like didn't he he had a 
appendicitis. So wait, we have a we have an expert on the podcast here about that, but uh, I don't know what I his should recovery. do something to say about that. So, oh, there we go. Then we'll toss that in here a second. But I think maybe if he comes back, you kind of hope that gives you a different look. But how long is it going to take him to kind of get back into shape? So um, I agree that you hope for slightly better games. But if you're only going to run a three man bench, uh, you're going to have a tough time. I think throughout it, really even in games, which is sorry, what was that, Kyle? As I say, you're not even running with that bench, really. Yeah, it's like 10-minute intervals or whatever. So I, I think you're going to have a tough time game to game and then just as the series wears on as well. So for now, I, I think it looks like maybe not impossible per se, but it does not look uh, bright for Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, I would have a tough time. I mean, it when it when it came to the end of the game and it looked and the, they actually shot worse than the Bucks, I think I would start to feel just a little bit better considering they have to have a little bit of mid range improvement. They went two for twelve from the corner on three tonight during the season. They were forty like forty three percent fourth like third or fourth best ranked in the league. So you hope for some of that to come bear some fruit. But I don't know if Pat, I don't know how much room Pascal Siakam has to improve considering Giannis is guarding him. I mean, maybe if he makes some of those triples, but I, I just think he's going to have a tough time in this series whenever Ilya Sova is on the floor, which um, shouldn't be too much. I mean, probably around 10, 14 minutes. Like he has I was going to say, he's got a feast in the Ursan minutes. He is yeah. every, every basket needs to go through every possession needs to go through him in the Ursan minutes for sure. <laughs> yeah. 100%. And yeah, I don't know if Ananobi's going to get back. I, I asked my um, fiance before it started, cause I had had this uh, appendicitis, but mine wasn't an emergency thing. If his, if his burst, I don't know if it did, uh, that would mean there's a huge, there's like an infection around like his, that whole area where your appendix is. And so they basically can't do a laparoscopic surgery. So they have to cut all of that open and it takes a lot longer for the wound to heal. Um, I thought they said on one of the podcasts I was listening to, he was still at least a week away. Um, but regardless, if that's what happened to him, he's probably not coming back until the finals because that's just, I mean, you know, I, I had to return to sit into sit in a chair and it took me a little bit of time. Um, this guy has to come back and play professional high level basketball. professional basketball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not not disparaging what I do, um, but <laughs> his requires a little more a little more tact. But yeah, I think if I if I were a Raptors fan, I I, I mean, as a Bucks fan, I, I think it's is I'm trying to think about if this win like we've done before, we talked about this narrative. Is is it saying more about the Bucks um, in terms of their ability to force an opponent into what they want them to do, or more about uh, the Raptors sort of dropping this one and, and not being able to win it? I, I feel a little inclined to maybe lean towards the Raptors in this scenario, um, just because the uh, the Bucks, you know, they did stick to their guns and, and it wound up working out in the end. But this really did feel like a game that Toronto should have won and just blew here at the end. Yeah, I would agree. Like, if your opponent shoots that poorly, the whole, the majority of the game, and you still couldn't gain separation. And when you did get that separation, having that double digit lead, you allow Milwaukee to get back into it. That's, it's more on Toronto than it is on Milwaukee. Like, yes, Milwaukee fought back. Milwaukee battled their way into it, but they should not have been in a position to battle their way into it at all, especially with how. Well, Toronto's shooting in the first half, and I was kind of saying down eight at halftime is a win for Milwaukee. And like it was just that third, I think that third quarter where they went on that run, and even though Toronto went back on went back and got a double digit lead, it didn't feel like that was going to last. So I'd say if I had to break it down in percentages, it's 80% Toronto had a missed opportunity and 20% Milwaukee really stormed back and won this game. 
Yeah, I, I think we can. I, I don't have a whole lot of other closing thoughts here. Are there any other main takeaways you guys wanted to cover from this one? Uh, I would just say the two stats, and I think this is, you know, if we can say tail of two halves, uh, though it's more so like tail of the fourth quarter finally blow things open. But um, at halftime, the Raptors had taken seven free throws, and they had made all seven, and Milwaukee had only taken four three free throws, made three. They, uh, Milwaukee ends the game taking 27, making 23, which is a gigantic difference. Uh, and Toronto ends it uh, with 17 uh, made off of 20 attempts. So I think that's notable. Um, hopefully the friendly wasn't in the second half kind of continues. And then for Milwaukee, I thought it was notable the fact that they end the first half. They went six for 23, uh, so like 26.1% from three. Not wonderful, uh, but even then, in the face of that, they end up with the game 11 for 44, so they only make another five three-pointers. But the fact that they were like, well, we're still just going to put up another 21 attempts, um, I thought that was notable. And again, it, it kind of feeds into the fact like they didn't make some sort of radical shift in the way they were approaching is like, if we still get the open three-point shot, we're going to take it. So um, I thought that was heartening. And uh, again, it Bud, Coach Bud, has kind of figured out this voodoo system where he has to do very little changes. Like, we're just going to keep doing us, and until somebody's able to stop us, we are not going to change a single thing. So uh, good for him, good for them, and uh, I, I expect more of the same in game two. Yeah, Kyle, any other main takeaways for you? The Bucks went 0 from 11 from 3 in the third quarter, and we're only down, what, 4 points? <laughs> no, sorry, 7. forgot the Seattle two. They were down 7. And they went all from 11 from three. That's impressive in itself. But I think it just showed that Milwaukee, kind of like what we were saying and what Riley had said, you stick to your guns, you stick to the game plan. Yeah, they couldn't hit any threes, but you just go to, you attack the rim and you're going to the line and you're getting those foul calls. I think that's going to be important for them to realize, you know, if you don't get a couple shots, it's okay to go for a lip. I think that's really what got Brooke Lopez going was he was able to get those, you know, six, seven, eight straight points just by feasting on people down low. And Milwaukee's offense has that variety of how they can score, which is what makes them so dangerous and goes on those runs. But defensively, I think the defense was really what stood out and more of that, please. And you know, let's hope that the next time we record, it's 3-0 of a series lead, or at least 2-1. Yeah, I was going to say, just real quick follow-up on that. It's the most, like, basic stat of all time, but just, like, per quarter scoring, just to your point, Kyle, of their of Milwaukee's defense and how they were running down. Like, the, Toronto went, they slowed significantly, went 34 in the first quarter, 25 second. Besides that, Siakam, like, buzzer three in the third, they would only at 21. They end up scoring only 17 points in the fourth quarter. And I think a scoring trend like that is going to be very common throughout the series, especially, you know, I don't know if they'll even jump off to that big of a, you know, lead in the first quarter. I, I do not expect that if Milwaukee is able to adjust defensively. So I think it's going to, they're in for a world to hurt personally. Well, I think something else to note was the game was played at a really fast pace in that first half. And maybe that is what was a big factor in why Toronto was slowing down and looking so gassed because they're playing at a much faster pace than what they've been used to all postseason. Well, for Milwaukee, that's kind of their norm. So something to look forward to, something to look at is if Toronto tries to slow it down again to try and limit those runs that Milwaukee goes on. 
Yeah, I think my last point is just going to be about Malcolm Brogdon. I forget which one of you it was that would had the in the point counterpoint argued against Brogdon earlier this year. Um, I, ah, my good uh, friend Kyle, step to the <laughs> floor, please take a bow. Uh, well, that's it's well in the past, but I, I just don't I don't think you can say enough about how much versatility he adds to this team. I mean, think about where they would have been defensively in any non-Middleton units tonight trying to face off against Kawhi Leonard. Do you try and have to put Sterling Brown in there to match up against him? I, I, like, you know, I love Brown. I love how he gets after it defensively, but I am more than happy for the rest of this playoff run seeing him just wearing his sweatpants with no warm up on top. Uh, and looking as fearsome from the sidelines as he does on the court. Because I think he would have got roasted, doesn't offer anywhere near what Brogdon does offensively. I mean, he just stepped right back into this tonight. Three of six from three-point land, uh, 15 points, three assists, three boards. It's just really impressive and really smart of of the Bucks and and Bud to really let him ensure that he gets back to 100% strength because he needed every bit of it tonight. Well, and it's not even just like, yes, it's all the timely scoring and everything, but if Toronto is going to run their starters as much as they do, like it part of what's going to get Milwaukee through this is if they can continue to keep the pressure on, or even if it's not, you know, building back up a lead or kind of cutting into a deficit, but at least staying within distance, like it, it, you're not throwing out Urson, George Hill, uh, Pat Connaughton and whoever else. And like, all right, we're just going to try and make it happen. Like you have Malcolm Brogdon out there to continue to make it a, you know, offensively stout lineup and kind of make it work defensively. So I think, uh, as you were saying, he's so important just because he keeps the pressure up just by his sheer presence and his ability to score. He keeps the pressure up and there's never a chance where Nick nurse can feel comfortable. Like, Oh, I can take Kawhi out here because who are you going to put out there? Jeremy Lin or, you know, the guys that you haven't played for weeks and you're just going to throw them out there. That's not obviously the strategy. So I think Malcolm Brogdon is valuable just from that alone. All right, well, that'll do it. Bucks win 108 to 100. Um, don't think we'll make predictions here. We should return to our regular schedule. You can expect a pod uh, early next week following that game three on Sunday, game two, of course, on Friday evening. And before we head out, guys, I just want to talk about one important thing. The crowd. The crowd. <laughs> you guys, when you're in the crowd and you have a playoff shirt, do you always put it on? Yes. I've never been, so I can't say, but I would like to think that I'm a conformist and I would put on the shirt. Yes. Okay. So here is the thing. I, okay. So I'm going to a game. I'm excited. I got like whatever cool thrift store bucks thing I got. I want to show it off. And then I get there and I get this cheaply made t-shirt and it's cool that it's a color. It's cool that it has a slogan on it. Uh, obviously I want it to take home and wear as a shirt all the time when I'm just sitting around the house. When you're when painting. You put it on it. Yeah, when I'm painting, put it on. <laughs> it's all, it's, it doesn't fit around anything. It's frumpy. It, like you just put, you end up just putting it over every other piece of clothing you have, and inevitably, it's it's too large, and then it just looks weird on your body as you're like, you know, it, it's going over your jersey that you're wearing. It, it just, it, I don't know. I I think there's there's something to be said for not wearing it. I, you know what I you sound like? Oh, oh, go Kyle. Here you go. Well, <laughs> I get, get a rebuttal, but I. When I go to a playoff game and I know there's a shirt, I just wear a plain white T-shirt. I'm expecting a T-shirt to be there. When I was younger, it didn't mix. I didn't like it because, obviously, it's probably going to be an adult XL, so I just drown in it. Now that I've grown a little bit more, it doesn't – I mean, it's still larger than I would like, but it, it, I will wear it. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's free and it's like, cool, I don't have to pay for this. I'll put it on. No problem. 
Adam, what you sound like to me is what I would call not a real fan. So everybody, I think there's a lot of scientific evidence behind the fact that, and we, all of us on the online community who rarely ever actually go to the games, I think we're probably the experts on this, but I I, I ran some polls earlier today and people still have the chance to vote on it. You have about 12 hours as of recording here. Um, And the poll was, if the Bucks make it to the finals, who will be most responsible? So number one was Giannis with 43% of the vote. Number two, the crowd plus t-shirts with 32% of the vote. So I think that's some hard science. I want to give a shout out to all the people who voted. And uh, I would advise everybody who's at the next game, we need to hear you because uh, we can't hear you over all the dampening that ESPN puts on. And so we're going to complain online about it. Yeah, well, I'm I'm also a hypocrite because when I went to the playoffs games against the Bulls, we only got rally towels, and I was mad. Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of t-shirt. rally towel. Like, I, what the hell am I going to do with it? No, okay, hold on. See, now I saw somebody having a serious conversation about the fact that rally towels take away clapping. That that's taken it to the nth degree, and I have to draw a line in the sand there. Like, are we really going to talk about that being the thing that swings the series? I'm so sick and tired of people talking about the crowd. Like, it's just, oh my god, just get over like, it, please. I, the crowd is fine. Like, it's going. It's one thing when you're playing the Detroit Pistons and you're going to beat the living crap out of them by 20 plus every game. That's one thing. But not since they've been playing the Celtics and now in Game One. It can get loud. This crowd is fine. I have no issues with it. I don't care if you wear the t-shirt or not. I'll wear it. What I would suggest is maybe di- separating like different sections by color so it actually looks cooler. But that's just me. And you but can I find... think too much arguing about the crowd. We just have to – obviously, it's Buck's Twitter, and Buck's Twitter has to bitch and moan about something. So it's going to be the crowd, I guess. You can find Kyle uh, Bucks if you're listening. You can find Kyle at Kyle Cochet. I'm at Riley Feldman, and that is at Adam R. Paris if you want to find us on Twitter for any more ideas. 100%. Yeah, I think the – yeah. All right, no more crowd talk. Let's just move on to basketball. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait glad. for the next – on Sunday, we'll wait for the pod. Don't worry, we'll come in with some hot takes. Yeah. Hot yeah, crowd I'm, takes. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say. Well, in the interim, hopefully you get to enjoy – Game twos and game three. This was for me a pretty thrilling experience. I'm sure it was for all of you guys too. Just an absolute, absolutely delightful watch to see the Bucks pull this one out. 108, 100, take a 1-0 series lead over the Toronto Raptors. Hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, knocking on so many pieces of wood en route to the NBA Finals. And make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, rate, review us, check out all of our stuff on brewhoop.com. We've, I'm sure we'll have exhaustive breakdowns of every single one of these games. Riley, I'm sure we'll break down exactly what percentage of people in the crowds were wearing their playoff shirts for every single game and follow us at brewhoop on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you guys again soon. On the streets of old Milwaukee, a young boy walking